She's sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. On Sunday, French President Emmanuel Macron was booed as he toured the damage. He has vowed he won't back down on the fuel taxes aimed at cutting carbon emissions. Protesters who have no formal leadership also say they won't stop until they get what they want. There's a massive bureaucracy dedicated to cultivating in students this delusional sense of their own oppression. And they carry this chip, this delusional victimology into the world at large. And they are going around blaming American institutions of endemic racism and sexism when that no longer is true. President George Herbert Walker Bush loved his family and he served his country. His example will always inspire and his lifetime of service will be enshrined in the hearts of the American people forever. And now, Stacy Washington. Welcome to the program. Stacy Washington, host of Stacy on the Ride here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk, urbanfamilytalk.com, stacyontheright.com. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at, at Stacy on the Right. And I'm also the co chair for Project 21's National Advisory Council um, for the National Center for Public Policy Research and uh, the 2018 Second Amendment Foundation Journalist of the Year. I get to say that for a little bit longer. Uh, so now in this hour in the program, so exciting. Uh, we're going to get to speak to Michael Gardner. He's the senior director of communications for MediShare. He's going to talk to us about um, what MediShare is and what is the most important aspect about having it as an opportunity, kind of something that b- gives you an escape mechanism from Obamacare. So we're going to talk about that with him That'll be in the third segment of this hour. Right now, I want to get into uh, Paris burning. It's burning, and and uh, you know Emmanuel Macron is trying to tamp down the anarchy that is in the streets of of Paris. And I've been to Paris four times, um, and I've been up in the Eiffel Tower, and I, I can tell you, it is truly one of the most beautiful cities on earth. It is the kind of place where you see it in the movies, and then when you go there in person, you're literally stunned by how truly beautiful it is, how lovely it is. Now, I haven't been since they've had their, you know, mass migration and all of that. And I've heard from friends who have been recently that it's kind of sad to see so many people covered from head to toe in those, you know, black curtains. um, And and that that does kind of mar the beauty of the city and and the people there. But there is, it's not just romantic. It is a truly architecturally stunning city. and, And the people there are truly, they're used to the tourists. So, um, they're cosmopolitan, but not like New York. There's, there's French people are not like New Yorkers. It's there. There's no way to compare them to other people groups. It's, it's just a very unique experience. And so ABC and NBC have taken it upon themselves to kind of hide away the true reason that people are so upset about the fact that Emmanuel Macron keeps jacking up their taxes, and he doesn't have to do it. He just wants to encourage people to behave in one way and stop behaving in another and so is using this as a mechanism to do a mechanism to do this so here it is number three just listen for it uh number three remarkable images overseas tonight the protests gripping paris body cam video showing police rushing to the famous arc de triomphe where protesters were vandalizing the monument 
Protesters known as Yellow Jackets are angry about rising gas prices and living costs in France. The biggest crisis yet for Emmanuel Macron. The government is considering imposing a state of emergency. Tonight, no end in sight to the turmoil across France, including more confrontations with police. These ambulance drivers today joining the largest anti-government demonstrations here in decades. What began as a protest against President Emmanuel Macron's plan to raise fuel taxes, growing over the weekend into a movement fueled by rage. Anger from those who say his policies favor the wealthy. Streets barricaded, cars lit on fire, snipers perched on rooftops. Police body cameras capturing this clash at the Arc de Triomphe. Riot police battling with protesters clad in yellow vests. The yellow vest protests, named after the safety vests worn by mostly peaceful demonstrators, began three weeks ago. They were fueled by a rise in the gasoline tax in a country where diesel already costs $6 a gallon and will go up another roughly 28 cents in January. So a gas tax hike of 28 cents a gallon. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you, you got to be thinking to yourself, who do these people think we are? Because you're not getting a corresponding increase in your pay, and people still have to buy gas. You, you can change people's minds about issues. You can shift public opinion. You can even shape behaviors of large groups of people in a society through taxation. It, it can be done. But 28 cents in one hop, very little notice, just, hey, we're going to jack up your taxes. A again, when we separate people who are doing the governing from the people who are, uh, you know, actually receiving the governance, the ones who are going to actually be impacted by the laws, when you do that, you end up with this weird, um, it's like a, it's an impetus that they have where they're like, oh, you know, we, we have to do this. And any kind of naysaying, any, any, any think tank people or policymakers or analysts who say, well, this might anger people because we just hiked the taxes or this might be something that would come across as uh, being tone deaf. These people, you know, they, they, need, they need options, not just, hey, we're jacking up your taxes. And Emmanuel Macron is like, yeah, but I can't, I don't have time to talk about this because me and my wife have got to go shopping for her $900 shoes. And I was one of those people who said, oh, look how she and Melania seem to have the same kind of fashion sense. And they seem to really like click when they met. And it was such a cute little like girl moment. But the fact is the Macrons don't live like your average everyday French citizen. They're wealthy. They've been wealthy for ages and they're they're removed from that. And there's, you know, the people of France elected him. So they're going to get what they elected. You're going to get what you vote for. That That is the beauty. And it's also the curse of voting. People who live in dictatorships who don't get to vote, they just get whoever is crafty enough and sneaky enough and can gather together enough power and, and armed military might, that's who gets to be in charge of their country. And however it's run is up to that person. But when you're a voter and you're in a country that gives you the right to select your leader and to vote them in or vote them out, when you vote someone in, even for those of us who voted against Barack Obama, but we were a part of the culture that elected him. We're a part of the culture that created Barack Obama, just like liberals right now are a part of the culture that created the space for Donald Trump. So you can't, you're not going to get away from it. And I remember realizing that when President Obama was elected, and I remember seeing it in, uh, some people wrote op-eds about it. I remember reading a passage in the Bible, you know, about God controlling the leader, but that 
governments are set up by people and that people elect those governments and that we're all responsible for the culture that we live in. The, the, the prevalence of pornography, just as many people in church watch pornography as people who don't go to church. The, the prevalence of abortion, just as many women who sit in the pews at church have abortions as those who don't. When you look at what we have in this culture, there is no group who can, well, you know what? I'm just not a part of that because I just disagree with it vehemently, and I have no contribution that I've ever made towards that particular thing. Well, you may not have contributed to it, but your voting or lack of voting, your participation or lack of participation, your silence or your speech in assent to a particular issue have all contributed to it being here. We're all a part of this thing. And that is why it's so important when, like, a caller from last hour was talking about how we speak, policing up how we parrot out what we're being told in the media that we're supposed to believe. And it's the same thing for these people in France. They voted in this young man married to this older woman who was married when she met him. And, they, you know, he's, he's a homewrecker. And he's also someone who doesn't have enough life experience under his belt to truly understand the plight of every French person. So they're getting what they voted for. And they're enraged. They got on vests and they're just tearing stuff up. And it worked for now, but you best believe he's going to put that tax into effect. He's, he is not deterred. He's just trying to figure out what's wrong with these people. Not, oh, my goodness, maybe this tax is a bad idea. It's what's wrong with them. That's his thing. So you got UN climate chief Patricia Espinoza. And, we're, and this connects up as, as obviously climate change is the thing that Emmanuel Macron wants to fight. And the people of France want him to stop jacking up their taxes. So they're, they're talking about the same thing, but they're not speaking the same language. Now, the United Nations climate chief has a solution to the urgent climate threat. Namely, quote, we require deep transformations of our economies and societies. Now, my personal recommendation for UN climate chief Patricia Espinoza is that she should take herself to one of these third world countries where there's no air conditioning and no central heating and Plumbing is not a real thing, and she should go live there. She should do her part to contribute to the improvement of the climate by taking herself off to one of these countries instead of trying to force developed nations back into the Stone Age. She says, this reality, notice how they start speaking in euphemisms, is telling us, this reality is telling us that we need to do more. The impacts, more, more, more language, of climate change are increasingly hard to ignore. I don't know about you, but it's what December. And I see big, huge, fluffy snowflakes falling and hitting the ground. And I'm in the Midwest and that is not odd at all. That is like not. So what is she talking about? And please miss me with this whole climate isn't weather and weather isn't climate. Words aren't words to you. You're just worshiping your God, which is these, uh, you know, redistribution ideology type things. That's your God. That's what you're doing. And if you want to bow down, go ahead. I don't recommend it. I think you're doing wrong, but you do you. But stop trying to make everybody else bow down to your fake, inconsequential, unable to do anything God, climate change. She was joined in this non-speaking speak by former UN Climate Summit presidents saying, we require, they also parroting the same language, we require deep transformations. Failure to act will be catastrophic. Again, language from these movies that we've seen, like 2012. How many have seen the movie 2012? Now, how many of you actually believe that 2012 was a real something that could actually happen to us, you know, because it was a movie that Hollywood made? This, I mean, I just, 
what is happening in our education system that people go into the movie theater and watch stuff and then afterwards they come out and they think Wakanda is a real place or that 2012 is something that could really happen to us because of climate change. Come on. A failure to act now risks pushing us beyond a point of no return with catastrophic consequences for life as we know it, said Amjad Abdullah, chief negotiator for the Alliance of Small Island States of the UN Talks. Chief negotiator for the Alliance of Small Island States. You know what would be really funny? I don't know about you guys, but on my little, you know, on my phone, on my iPod, I have a wide variety of music. It's not just one genre. There's like, you would, you'd be surprised what's on there. And I have classical music. And I wonder if this, this article would be better if there, were cl- if there were classical music playing in the background. And then I read this sentence, a failure to act now risks pushing us beyond a point of no return with catastrophic consequences for life as we know it. He's from the Alliance of Small Island States. He's probably got catastrophic conditions going on there because his country's poverty stricken, not because of, the, of climate. So now they've termed a new term. They've, they've created a new term, a clexit, climate exit from the U.N. building thanks to President Trump. The U.N. climate summit in Katowice may show us if there will be any domino effect following the U.S. withdrawal, said Lawrence Tubiana, CEO of the European Climate Foundation and main architect of the Paris deal. Now, Here's the thing. If the U.N. wasn't funding this European Climate Foundation, then he wouldn't have a platform from which to catapult these nonsensical ideas into our thinking spaces. He would not be able to access us if he if we if we weren't funding this. Brazil's strongman president elect Jair Bolsonaro, for one, has promised to follow the American lead during his campaign. The U.N. climate chief, Patricia, she's doubled down. She's she's super excited. You know, she's got a whole lot to say. And she's wearing a very expensive outfit, fancy watch, pearls, hair is freshly cut and coiffed. Um, in a rare intervention, presidents from previous U.N. climate summits issued a joint statement as the talks got underway, calling on states to take decisive action to tackle these urgent threats. The impacts of climate change are increasingly hard to ignore. A cop- so this this is you know, different statements that they're making. Nations must agree to a rule book palatable to all 183 states who have ratified the Paris deal. And it's far from a given because the dust is still settling on U.S. President Donald Trump's exit. Thank God. You know, honestly, thank God. All right, when we get back, we're going to be talking about U.S. colleges breeding hate. Stay there. Hello, everyone. I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. Hey, Stephen McDowell has been a personal friend of mine for a couple of decades now. He is one of the best historians I know. He is president of the Providence Foundation, and no one documents early American history, especially the Christian aspect of early American history, better than my friend Stephen McDowell. He is going with us on our spiritual heritage tours, and he'll be talking all along the way and answering questions, and you're going to enjoy spending time with him if you're able to go with us in June or September. Again, we're going to Washington, D.C. and Mount Vernon, and we're also going on a separate trip to Williamsburg, Jamestown, and Yorktown. 
So if you'd like to go on either one of these or both of them, contact us at spiritualheritagetours.com. That's spiritualheritagetours.com. This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. The pay gap between men and women has been the source of economic discussion and political debate for decades. Progressives claim that the gender pay gap is due to sexism and requires government intervention. Others argue that the difference has more to do with the priorities of women in the workforce and choices they make. The Wall Street Journal recently summarized a study done by Harvard economist of the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority. It provided a perfect test case since it is a union shop with uniform hourly wages in which women and men adhere to the same rules and thus enjoy the same benefits. Workers are promoted based on seniority, not performance. Men and women have the same options for scheduling, routes, vacation, and overtime. The rules and regulations made it nearly impossible for bias, sexism, or preferential treatment to affect pay. Even at the Transportation Authority, female bus and train operators earned less than men. In order to explain why, the professors looked at time cards and scheduling and compared it to such factors as sex, age, seniority, and tenure. They found that male bus and train operators worked about 83% more overtime hours than their female colleagues. They were also more than twice as likely to accept an overtime shift on short notice. Since the agency pays time and a half for overtime, this obviously affected earnings. The economists also found that female bus and train operators were much more likely to take routes that wouldn't require them to work nights, weekends, and holidays. That is why they concluded that women, especially single women with children, value both time and the ability to avoid unplanned work much more than men. I think that's the best explanation for the gender pay gap. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. Take Kirby and the Point of View team with you on the go with the Point of View app. Search for Point of View Radio at the Apple or Google Play stores. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Virtually every, virtually every aspect of the culmination of hysteria that greeted uh, Judge Kavanaugh was perfected over the last decade on a college campus. Above all, the preposterous mantra to believe survivors, regardless of the evidence, regardless of due process. This is the campus rape hysteria that has been transforming the lives of males on campuses, creating an extraordinarily costly bureaucracy, moved into the real world, and it's not going away. It's only going to get worse. And what we are doing is breeding the grounds for I fear civil war because students are being taught to hate, to hate the greatest works of Western civilization and frankly to hate each other. From the moment a student steps on college campus today as a freshman or a fresh person I should probably say, the bureaucracy is determined to, to drum into that student's head identity politics, which says he's either a victim or an oppressor. Oppressors are obviously, most famously, white males, heterosexual white males. The only way they can get out of their oppressor category is to become an ally, an ally of the oppressed. The, the most preposterous delusion of all of this is students actually believe that they are at risk of their lives from circumambient racism and sexism on a college campus. 
<laughs> so <laughs> um, that's Heather McDonald. And she is she's been on the show before. Fantastic expert. Uh, she writes about these topics. She researches them. She has a book. Uh, I mean, she is incomparable when it comes to um, just delving into these there are social impacts that we're experiencing from having nincompoops and fools in charge of so many of the spheres that really are foundational, like our higher educational system, which used to turn out really fine thinkers. In addition to training people in a profession, people would also continue to cultivate the ability to think well and analyze information and to be exposed to information that was oppositional to their own view and consider it in the frame of the American ethos, the U.S. Constitution, our historic, historical, um, you know, we, we've had good in our history. We've had bad like any other nation. And you'd be able to place America in its proper role in the entire world and then consider the information that you would that, that's coming at you from both sides, from all sides and consider it well taking it in, learning from it what you will, but maintaining an American perspective. Now we've moved away from that and we're really entrenched in, and not all of us, but so many are entrenched in this idea that, um, well, first of all, ideas are physically painful. Um, not being exposed to physically painful ideas is more preferable, I should say, is preferable to being exposed to those ideas that we dislike and just the exposition of ideas that we don't like, even if we don't hear them ourselves. If ideas that we don't like are presented on the campus in a room somewhere on the campus that we may not even be anywhere in close proximity to, just those ideas being presented is a painful assault on our physical person, our ability to speak freely ourselves, et cetera, et cetera. And we're seeing that over and over and over again. And no place has it been better exemplified than UC Berkeley. They're actually paying a conservative organization $70,000 while maintaining their innocence. Now, 70 grand, you might say, eh, but that's, that's some teacher's aide's salary for the year uh, that they just, they're going to dole out to the Young America's Foundation. So after nearly one year of litigation in federal court, Young Americans for Freedom announced that they've received a, a judgment for $70,000. Actually, it's a settlement that they've reached with the University of California, Berkeley, over the college's restrictive campus speaker policy. UC Berkeley agreed to pay them seventy grand, rescind their high-profile speaker policy, retract the security fee policy, abolish the so-called heckler's veto, which allowed protesters to shut down events featuring conservative speakers by triggering conservative or tr triggering security concerns and all viewpoint they've agreed all criteria for assessing major events must be applied with a viewpoint neutral manner. The settlement agreement explains the university must identify all events throughout the academic year that fall under its major events policy, the total amount of fees that are paid to UC Berkeley for those events as well as every reservation from any registered student organization for events that amass more than 100 people or participants. In effect, the university has updated their major events policy. 
The quote is all criteria for assessing major events must be applied in a viewpoint neutral manner and without regard to the content of any performance or speaking aspect of the event, according to the settlement. The university also announced the release of a fee schedule for events to help ensure that functions of all types are handled appropriately. Despite all of these court-ordered changes, Berkeley refused to acknowledge that its major events policy was unconstitutional, as alleged by YAF's lawsuit. UC Berkeley says, quote, the court rejected plaintiffs' contentions that the policy gives campus administrators the ability to engage in viewpoint discrimination. Berkeley further noted that the settlement required that the plaintiffs dismiss their litigation. That is an improper thing for them to announce because a settlement is just that. You agree to leave off the lawsuit that you had initially filed and settle your grievance with them for concessions, money, court costs, fees. You know, you lay all of that on the table and you negotiate. No one is going to give a settlement agreement and then allow the lawsuit to go forward. So their assertion that somehow the dismissal of the lawsuit by the plaintiffs is indicative of their lack of standing or lack of ability to win ignores the fact that UC Berkeley's paying 70 grand and updating their policy. But this, this is the propaganda machine that is UC Berkeley. Referencing the $70,000 payment from UC Berkeley to the plaintiffs, the settlement states, quote, by agreeing, by agreeing to make this payment, defendants in no way admit the plaintiffs are or would be a prevailing party in the litigation. While we regret the time, effort, and resources that have been expended successfully defending the constitutionality of UC Berkeley's event policy, this settlement means the campus will not need to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in unrecoverable defense costs to prove that UC Berkeley has never discriminated on the basis of viewpoint. That is a big, fat spoonful of lies. And this guy is the spokesman for UC Berkeley, Dan Mogoloff. The spokesman further explained that these court proceedings will be the cheapest and easiest path. He emphasized that the settlement does not require the university concede that any of the plaintiff's claims of previous viewpoint discrimination have any basis. In fact, who cares what Young America's Foundation was trying to do was to get the policy updated so that it was no longer discriminatory towards conservatives. Admitting that it was discriminatory is not required since the behavior that they were engaging in was preventing conservative speakers from speaking on campus. Now they've set themselves up. If they truly believe Dan Mogulov's statements that they never discriminated, then why did they need to update their policy? Now that the policy has been updated, if they don't abide by their own policy, YAF can simply sue them again. And they would prevail because they have to abide by their own policies. It's a win for, for Young America's Foundation. It's a win, and I'm so glad they were able to pull it off. If there's one thing we, we know to be the truth that we, we, we have to agree on, it's that the people who most often say conservatives are fascists are the ones engaging in fascist behavior themselves. It's these college campus flunkies, these people who are, you know, they're doing gender studies and, you know, black studies and women's studies, and they're so sensitive, they can't even hear an opposing viewpoint. It, and it's not about the delivery of the viewpoint. It's that they can't even allow someone who disagrees with them to speak anywhere near where they would be 
Like possibly they might walk there. That and and this is the way we're raising kids nowadays. If you're someone who's got kids who are going uh, to to school or wherever, and that's what they're ending up with, that's what they're that's their viewpoint. That's how they're behaving. We got problems. And I know at one point it was really popular to say, oh, this is the, you know, everybody gets a trophy generation. And that was done because kids were keeping score and things were getting really competitive and people insist on people playing sports. Kids have to start playing sports when they're like three years old. Now, you know, full disclosure, we did the same thing. Our kids were in those little tiny league soccer and, and this and that. And we did it. All, all of our neighbors did it. We we were just like right in there in the herd playing in the little um, local municipality sport league. And it was fun for the kids. And But what was funny to me was, so we, the first time we ever went to the meeting, you know, you go and you're, you're two parents and you got one kid who's going to play who's like four or five. And then you have two other kids, we, our, our two little kids. One was still in the front pack carrier and our little guy, he was walking, but, you know, he was really small. And so we get there and he's like, I want to play. I want to play. So, he, you know, he grabs the soccer ball, starts kicking it all over the place. And our daughter was sitting there and she's like, I want to hear what the rules are. And so he says, well, you know, with these little games, these games for the, the tiniest kids, we don't actually keep score. And Maya, like her eyes got huge. She said, no scoring. She's like not even five. She immediately latched onto the fact that she'd be playing, but no one would be keeping track. She said, mommy, will you keep track? And I said, I mean, yeah, sure. So what I came to find out, find out after they began to play when the season started is that if you sit anywhere near the bench where the kids who aren't on the field are sitting, waiting on their turn to, you know, get, get you know, put in, you can hear them. They're like, oh, now it's three to four. The kids on the bench, they're keeping score. So they don't care if you're keeping score up on the big board. They're saying in their own little minds, because otherwise, what's the, what, why are they playing, right? So everything that we're doing to try to take competition out of things, to try to suppress the human desire to compete and to do well and, and to rank in order who, of who is better, who is, who, you know, people don't want to compete. People don't want to see other people be successful because it, they think it bodes badly on themselves. Actually, it doesn't. And one of the things that we taught our kids during, the, during this episode, um, where not only was she playing, but then our son started playing and they're 15 months apart. So they were like on literally one team was only slightly bigger than the other team as, as far as height and stature. And we'd go to the games and sometimes they'd be back to back because he was on a boys team and she was on a girls team. And they could play on really the same level because they were only a year apart. And one thing we really stressed to them was you can definitely, um, you know, compete with the other team. But on your own team, instead of saying, well, he's faster than I am or he, no, compete with yourself. And we tried to drill that into them because what ends up happening when people are competing with other people is, first of all, you're not equipped the same as another person. No one is. And obviously, there's going to be some competition because people in the same industry are going to be comparing their their progress with other people in the same industry. But the competition for us as Christians is with ourselves. And when I say that, it's bettering ourselves and getting further along with whatever God has given us to do. And the minute we start saying, well, you know, I've got to be competing with him. I've got to be competing with her. I've got to be, you know, that I can't let that person do more than I'm doing. How, I mean, how are you going to let anybody do anything? How are you going to fix your mouth, face, hands, whatever you got going on? 
to undo or redo or have some impact on whatever that person is praying to God for and working out and on their own. That's why it's so important for us to compete with ourselves. And I mean, if you need to compete with someone and competing with yourself is simply saying, look, here's where I was last year. This year I'm here. And you pray over your goals and you say, Lord, what, what, do you, what do you want me to be doing? And then work towards that instead of saying, well, that person's doing this. Well, that person's doing that. Now, that doesn't mean that rules don't matter or that we don't have to listen to those who are placed in authority over us. But the competition for the pure sake of competition, that's, that's not the way we're supposed to be doing it. And what's funny to me is that our human need to assess our progress in areas, which includes keeping score, that starts so early on that little three and four-year-olds are on the bench using their fingers to count off. You know, one little boy would keep his, one hand was for the opposing team. The other hand was for his own team. And he would keep score using his fingers. And remember, these are little tiny kids playing soccer. So you're not, it's not like they're ever getting to eight or nine points. It's like really low, low scoring points. And they, he would keep score in his little fingers. And sometimes if the adults lost track, we would just glance down and look and there he'd be with his little fingers up and we'd be like, okay, we got four. <laughs> No, she must not have scored because he, he's still at four. And and when they got bigger and they started keeping score, it was easier, obviously. But we, we're we not doing these kids any anything good by trying to ignore the human desire to keep track of what's going on. And if what we're turning out is kids who are so soft and so weak that they can't hear the opposing view... They can't even have the opposing view be present in their college or university. Then what kind of parenting is really going on? And I know for conservatives, we that's not the way we raise our kids. But our kids are in schools with these other little soft mamby-pamby types. And I think it's pretty sad. I mean, it is honestly just a, it's like, these are grownups. These are people with cars. These are people who are driving and working and, and living every day. And also their university is now paying out $70,000 to YAF, which in my opinion, they probably deserve more than that. YAF probably deserved a couple hundred thousand. Um, And the payment, it doesn't say whether or not the payment includes their court costs. Um, The the article doesn't. It's over at Campus Reform. Fascinating piece by Mason Mackay um, about this development. Young America's Foundation, they won. They beat the stuffing out of UC Berkeley because if they hadn't, UC Berkeley wouldn't be paying them 70 grand. I don't care what their spokes guy says. <laughs> All right, so we will be back with Michael Gardner, Senior Director of Communications for MediShare right after these messages. Keep it here. it take to live an uncommon life? Here's former Super Bowl winning coach Tony Dungy with today's Uncommon Moment. I once heard a company executive say, of course I know how to lead. I've been in charge of one thing or another for more than 30 years. Of course, that's how the world views leadership. It's all about the power or authority we wield over other people. One's position or status is certainly part of the leadership equation, but only part. Many of the most effective leaders I've seen do not have positional authority over the people they lead. What I'm talking about are mentor leaders. 
people who recognize the value of helping others flourish. It's about the lives you've impacted and improved. It's about thinking of others ahead of yourself. Tony Dungy, author of the popular Uncommon book series. Discover more at CoachDungy.com. That's CoachDungy.com. Hi, this is Steve Tiber with 8 Days of Hope. We've been all over the country helping disaster victims who lose everything. It's truly a blessing. I really don't have the words to express. And yet, they see a glimmer of hope when a volunteer shows up. Building the home, that's the second reason we're here. The number one reason is to share the gospel and, and give them hope. It's everything that's right in America. I mean, it really represents the, the best that we have to offer. That's one of the main reasons for doing it, is being able to be the hands and feet of Jesus and coming out and working with so many wonderful volunteers. I just feel like it's important in this day and age to teach a child uh, how to serve. Please go to our website, 8daysofhope.com, and click on Get Involved. Submit your email address, and the next time we go anywhere with a disaster, we'll invite you to come along as well. I love coming in the job room because you can see these pieces of paper, they aren't just a piece of paper. Right. It's a family that's hurting, and it's a gospel opportunity. And I just thank God, you know, for this moment. I mean, I'll be back in my home, and I know it's going to be awesome. Come love others with 8 Days of Hope. Media Minute with Howard Kurtz. The New York Times says Sheryl Sandberg, Facebook's number two, was not telling the truth when she denied knowing anything about the social network's attacks on Democratic contributor George Soros. In fact, says the Times, Sandberg asked for the information about Soros in an email to another executive after Soros had publicly criticized Facebook as well as Google. She has a great media image. She's the author of Lean In, but she was not being straight about her role. Meanwhile, the Daily Caller reports that engineers at Google, some of them wanted to bury results from conservative sites. Here's an email. Too much stuff, this person says, from opinion blogs, Breitbart, Daily Caller, elevated next to legitimate news organizations. That can and should be fixed. But another engineer, a Hillary supporter, says thinking that Breitbart and Drudge, etc. are not legitimate news sources is contrary to the beliefs of a major portion of our user base. Good for him. Once you tamper with search results, credibility goes out the window. With your Media Minute, Howie Kurtz, Fox News. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for being here today. It is a pleasure to be with you. And this is the last segment of the second hour of Stacy on the Right here on Urban Family Talk. You can find the podcast at urbanfamilytalk.com and afr.net. Right now, it's my pleasure to welcome Michael Gardner, Senior Director of Communications for MetaShare. Michael, thank you for being here today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, so let's talk about MediShare. And this is something that I think enough Americans don't know about. I'm so excited to hear that MediShare now has over 400,000 participants. And that, to me, represents a strong, it's like a beachhead, a place from which to launch further battles to get more people to be aware. And so I want to talk a little bit about what it is. Can you tell the listeners just what is MediShare? Absolutely. So MediShare is a healthcare sharing ministry. Uh, We've now been around for 25 years. This is our 25th anniversary, and we're really excited about that. And it really is a community of people who voluntarily come together every month to share one another's medical burdens. So, you know, it's modeled. It's a faith-based community. We model it based on the the description we see of the early church in the Book of Acts, where people came together and, and sold their possessions and their belongings, and they shared with one another, and their needs were met. And that's really the motivation uh, behind the program. So you know, this idea of sharing is 2,000 years old, and uh, 
you know, we're, we're really just happy to be able to bring that um, into the community today so people's medical burdens uh, are, are being lifted by one another. Okay, so insurance companies don't use terms such as burden and share, as you just described there when you were telling us what MediShare is. Uh, but MediShare, that's a part of who you are as, as a, as a cost-sharing organization. So what makes MediShare a ministry and not a traditional company providing insurance? Absolutely. You're, you're right. Um, and that's one of the things that we try to make very clear to people is that MediShare uh, is not a, a, a health insurance company. I think there's this misconception that we're an affordable Christian health insurance uh, offering, and that's, that's really not the case. It's a much different thing. It feels different. Um, and I think, first of all, one of the things that's really different is the community aspect and the community of prayer that comes together. So prayer is a really important aspect for our members. Uh, they pray for one another when they share in medical needs or, or have a medical burden. Um, and our ministry prays for, for our members when they call in. If people call in, uh, you know, asking about a bill. Our, our folks on the phones will pray with them, lift things up. There are boards throughout the ministry with the names of members who, who need specific prayers. And so that's really the heart of the organization is, is to come alongside one another and bear those burdens and, and do it in the community of prayer. So that's quite different. Um, I think one of the other things that makes it different, too, is that this is really member-to-member direct sharing from, from one member um, to another. And in some cases, it can be from hundreds of members to another uh, for a really sizable burden. And, you know, our members have had those types of things over the year, um, cancer treatment, uh, really serious accidents, injuries, organ transplants. Uh, you know, our members have shared in all of those kinds of things and everyday burdens throughout the years. So one thing that I think will pop into someone's mind if they hear that is, what if I submit my bill and nobody wants to share it? Does that happen? Is that possible? Um, it is voluntary sharing. To my knowledge, that's not happened. You know, the idea is we automate this for members and bring people together in community. So I'll know, for example, every month I'll get a notification of all the different people that I'm sharing with. Um, and in some cases, you know, I'll find out what that specific need was. I'll find out, you know, what health condition that person is, uh, is struggling with. In other cases, members don't want to share that information as well. But we kind of automate that process and really try to build this community where we connect a person that has a medical bill with a group of other people who can share in that bill. And so that's worked really well for our members over the years. We can talk about the specifics of how that works, too, if you'd like. Well, okay, so yes, I do, I, I do want to hear the specifics because I think one of the things that I've, I've noticed, especially in talking about MediShare, is people assume that there's, there has to be like, so there has to be a downside to it. There has to be a way where there's three people who aren't getting shared anything or they're only having to use their own funds that they put in because no one wants to share. And I was like, I don't think that's possible, but that, that's why I asked that question. And so how sure. specifically does it work? Like what, what's the quick rundown of the process? Absolutely. So there, there are really, let's talk first MediShare by the numbers. There, there are two numbers you really need to understand to have the full picture on how this works. So the first is called your monthly share amount, and that's um, a monthly amount that, as a member, you deposit into a sharing account every month. And it's important to understand that that amount is not used for your own medical expenses. It's actually shared with other members in need. So, you know, my family, we're all MediShare members, my wife, myself, our two kids. Um, each month, our monthly share is $315. We deposit that into our share account, and we never use that for our own expenses. We share that with other people. Because at the same time, if we have medical bills or medical needs, we'll go to the, to the doctor or go to the pharmacy, you know, and get those medical needs met. And we'll pay all of 
of our bills up to a certain limit, and we call that limit your annual household portion. And so it's the amount of your own medical bills that you commit to paying before you ask the other members to come alongside you and lift your burden. Not so your deductible. annual household, um, it's similar to that. Everyone's mm-hmm. eligible medical bills count towards it in the family, so it's for everyone in the house, you know, everyone in your member household. Um, and it's customizable. You know, so we really do have seven different options. Uh, that amount could be as low as $1,500 a year. It could be as high as $10,500 a year. And it really allows people to tailor this to their own family situation. You know, if, if you've been working for a number of years and you have some savings set aside that you know you could use for a medical medical situation if that arose, you could choose a, a higher annual household portion. But for folks just starting out, you know, they may not feel comfortable doing that and may, may choose a lower one. So that's the thing that you need to understand is you'll pay um, every penny of your own medical bills up to that, you know, until you get to that annual household portion amount. And that's when the sharing happens. Okay, so then after you've selected your amount and you're paying in and your bills are being shared, that's pretty much it. When you go to the doctor, they're billing you as a person who doesn't have insurance or does this put you in the insured rates column where you're paying less for each uh, visit and all of that? You're, well, technically you're not insured because you don't have health insurance since MediShare isn't health, health insurance. But what we do offer our members is access to a nationwide network of providers so there are negotiated rates with those providers um, for discounting as well. So in effect, when you go to the when you seek medical care, you find the provider. Ideally, choose one from the network because it helps control your out-of-pocket costs. You go see that provider. You get the care you need. Your provider sends the bills to Medishare, and we do the rest. Um, so that's really that's really where Medishare comes in. It's important to understand that Medishare doesn't pay bills. You know, we don't pay medical bills, you know, for members. Members share bills directly with one another. So when a bill comes to us, we'll look at it and say, okay, were applicable discounts applied to this bill? If they were, then we say, okay, was it eligible for sharing? So bills fall into a couple different categories. Either they're eligible for sharing, they're not eligible for sharing, or they're eligible for sharing but with some uh, limitations. And so we'll look at that bill, and if it's eligible for sharing and you've met your annual household portion, it then gets shared by the other members at 100%. That's important to understand. We don't do 70, 30, 80, 20, um, you know, splits and those sorts of things. Okay. Wow. Okay. So the midterms just, just happened. And uh, I was wondering if you could share with us what drove voters to place health care as a defining issue in exit polling in the midterm elections. Sure. I mean, if you just look at your family's monthly budget, you know, health care is a sizable, uh, sizable percentage of that for everyone. So people are definitely looking for health care solutions. They're getting creative with those solutions. You know, I remember, um, you know, in my working life, there have been times when I had health insurance through an employer, and that worked really well for my family. But I think for people, um, about half of our members are self-employed, and so they may not have that option available to them. So MediShare is certainly, I think, attractive to them. But people are really becoming much more savvy healthcare consumers, and you know we see people kind of joining together. Uh, they may, a family may have health insurance for one person and Medishare for others. You know they may have other products as well that they use to put together for you know the, the full package that they need to meet their their family's healthcare needs. And I think people are just becoming much more savvy consumers of healthcare. Yeah, I I agree with you. I think people are just looking for because in in the technology age that we're living in, you would think that we'd mm-hmm. have better control over something like healthcare, something that people, it's, this is new. We didn't just discover healthcare, but we're still battling over it and having uh, really not a lot of success with managing it. Um, but MediShare seems to be 
kind of the departure from that norm where you don't have haggling over all of that stuff. It's a very simple, you've laid out what sounds like a simple, well-working plan that can be executed. You just join in, you join the other 400,000 plus, you start contributing, your bills get shared after you meet your you know, annual mm-hmm. p- portion. And mm-hmm. the added bonus is that people are praying for you and kind of participating in um, that, that healing process. Um, so you mm-hmm. talked about Absolutely. the 25th anniversary. How, how Michael, and we're speaking with Michael Gardner, if you're just tuning into the show, we're speaking with Michael Gardner. He's the Senior Director of Communications for MediShare. Uh, Michael, how did MediShare get started to begin with? It's actually one of those success stories where, where something was started in someone's garage. That's actually how it happened. Uh, you know, our founder started it um, in his garage here in Melbourne, Florida, where we're still headquartered today. Um, and the program has grown over time. You know, it was it was started with this vision of you know allowing people to come together and share in one another's healthcare burdens. And over time, that that uh, solution has certainly fit for a lot of a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons. And so. Um, it, it's just great to be here looking forward to the next 25 years and seeing where God is going to take this and what kind of solutions we can solve with sharing. You know, the whole idea behind this program, really, um, sharing is important. And, and members, I think, often call to learn about MediShare because they hear about how affordable it is. You know, our average family right now pays right around $400 a month is that monthly share amount. And so people hear that number and they call. And, and I think that's really important. Because one of the things that we really are allowed to do is for people to keep more of their money to put it to work. And, you know, that's the real motivation behind what we do, that if we can give people prayer support and we can help people um, keep their resources and use them effectively, they can respond to whatever God, uh, whatever call God has on their life. So that looks different for a lot of people. But we have members who tell us that, you know, they're now able to go um, buy books for their uh, a Bible study, you know, so people can participate who otherwise couldn't. Or they're adopting children or homeschooling their children or starting ministries and small business of their own. And, and that's really, you know, what drives us is if we can help people free up some of their resources to go fulfill that calling, they're going to they're gonna make a difference in their family and in their community and in their churches. And that, for us, is a really worthwhile thing to support. Wow. So I, I just while you were speaking, Michael, I was thinking of some other things that that you're freed up to do. Like if you, if you don't have to get a job um, based on your employer providing health insurance for you, then that opens up the realm of possibility for you starting your own business or working mm-hmm. for yourself. And so do you have in amongst the 400,000 users, um, young people just starting out who've graduated from college, but they want to hang their own shingle and they're they're starting out with MediShare because that enables them to be able to work for themselves? We do. I mean, it really runs the gamut. But, you know, half of our members are self-employed. So some of them oh. work in financial services, some of them wow. work in consulting, some of them work in technology. Um, you know, the, the real common denominator is that this is a community of faith and that people are really um, putting their faith into practice. And this, you know, the MediShare program is allowing them to do that in an, an even more effective way. So that's really what we aspire to, is, is to help people through through that, um, you know, through that process. So what's driving the growing number of urban Christians to choose MediShare? Well, I, I think the real, the real question is, what's causing people in general to look at alternatives like this? And a lot of it really does have to do with cost. You know, people are trying to figure out a way to stretch their dollars, um, you know, to to do more in our in our case, in our membership case, to do more with those dollars uh, because they do feel called to do something with it. And so I think cost is certainly driving a lot of this. Uh, and that's a lot of times, I think, why people inquire about it. But, 
you know, hearing um, hearing the stories from people about their their needs being met and about what they're doing with the savings is really the end result of that. I think, um, you know, you mentioned technology, and one of the one of the things that really kind of separates MediShare from a lot of other programs, I think, is the way that we use technology because we try to apply it to keep more money in people's pockets. And one of the things that we implemented within the last uh, two years, I guess now, is a telemedicine program. So our members all get no-cost access to a telemedicine program where they can actually see a board-certified physician uh, who's board-certified in their state 24-7 um, every day of the year. And, you know, from clicking a button to, to making an appointment to seeing the doctor to talking to the doctor on the phone to getting a text message from my local pharmacy that my prescription is ready, you know, maybe a, a half-an-hour proposition. And so it's one of those programs where we said, well, you know, because you're going to pay every penny of your own health care, so you hit that AHP, that means for little things like when my kids get, you know, strep throat or a pink eye or somebody has the flu, you know, we're going to pay out of pocket for that. But with our telemedicine program, people can now see a provider um, at no cost for those everyday kinds of things. And it's just one of the, the things that we try to add on to the program, um, you know, to help people reduce that out of pocket and, and stretch those resources even further. All right. So we have about 60 seconds left. Tell us the first step if someone's interested and they want to join in this kind of revolution that you've been operating for 25 years now. What do they do? Absolutely. The best place to go for information is our website, which is MediShare, M-E-D-I-Share.com. There's great information there. You can see pricing information. You can see testimonials from members who have had uh, really substantial needs shared. Uh, There's information about how the program works. And most importantly, there's a phone number there that people can call to speak with someone here at MediShare to get answers to their questions. You know, we talked about the fact that this really is a different animal. It's different from what people are used to. And at this time of the year, people are making really important decisions about what they're going to do for health care in the upcoming year. And we want to make sure they make an informed decision. So um, I would always encourage people to check out that information, but call and have a conversation. MediShare.com. Thank you so much, Michael, for joining the show. Good evening from the Heartland, citizens. Back with you tomorrow. StacyOnTheRight.com.